Good evening. Welcome to the Just Sleep Podcast. I'm Tasha, your host. Every week, I will read you an old story to help you relax, put the stressful day behind you, and drift off to sleep. Occasionally, we will run ads in order to cover the costs of the production of the podcast. Rest assured, there will be no ads during or after the story. If you prefer an ad-free and intro-free show, you can join Just Sleep Premium. Visit justsleeppodcast.com slash support for more information. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Tonight, I will be reading The Blue Castle by Lucy Maud Montgomery. So lie down, close your eyes, and let me read you a story. Chapter 1 If it had not rained on a certain May morning, Valancy Sterling's whole life would have been entirely different. She would have gone with the rest of her clan, to Aunt Wellington's engagement picnic, and Dr. Trent would have gone to Montreal. But it did rain, and you shall hear what happened to her because of it. Valency wakened early 
in the lifeless, hopeless hour just preceding dawn. She had not slept very well. One does not sleep well sometimes when one is 29 on the morrow and unmarried, in a community and connection where the unmarried are simply those who have failed to get a man. Deerwood and the Stirlings had long since relegated Valancy to hopeless old maidenhood. But Valancy herself had never quite relinquished a certain pitiful, shamed little hope that romance would come her way yet. Never, until this wet, horrible morning, when she wakened to the fact that she was twenty-nine and unsought by any man. Ah, there lay the sting. Valancy did not mind so much being an old maid. After all, she thought, being an old maid couldn't possibly be as dreadful as being married to an Uncle Wellington or an Uncle Benjamin or even an Uncle Herbert. What hurt her was that she had never had a chance to be anything but an old maid. No man had ever desired her. The tears came into her eyes as she lay there alone in the faintly graying darkness. She dared not let herself cry as hard as she wanted to, for two reasons. She was afraid that crying might bring on another attack of that pain around the heart. She had had a spell of it after she had got into bed, rather worse than any she had had yet. And she was afraid her mother would notice her red eyes at breakfast and keep at her with minute, persistent, mosquito-like questions regarding the cause thereof. Suppose, thought Valancy with a ghastly grin, I answered with a plain truth. I am crying because I cannot get married. How horrified a mother would be, though she is ashamed every day of her life of her old maid daughter. But of course, appearances should be kept up. It is not, Valancy could hear her mother's prim, dictatorial voice asserting, it is not maidenly to think about men. The thought of her mother's expression made Valancy laugh, for she had a sense of humour nobody in her clan suspected. For that matter, there were a good many things about Valancy that nobody suspected. But her laughter was very superficial, and presently she lay there, a huddled, futile little figure, listening to the rain pouring down outside and watching, with a sick distaste, the chill, merciless light creeping into her ugly, sordid room. She knew the ugliness of that room by heart, knew it, and hated it. The yellow-painted floor, with one hideous, hooked rug by the bed, with a grotesque, hooked dog on it, always grinning at her when she awoke. The faded, dark red paper, the ceiling discolored by old leaks and crossed by cracks. The narrow, pinched little washstand, the brown paper lambrequin with purple roses on it. The spotted old looking glass with a crack across it, propped up on the inadequate dressing table. The jar of ancient potpourri made by her mother in her mythical honeymoon. The shell-covered box with one burst corner, which Cousin Stickles had made in her equally mythical girlhood. The beaded pincushion with half its bead fringe gone. The one stiff yellow chair. The faded old motto, gone but not forgotten worked in coloured yarns about great-grandmother Sterling's grim old face, the old photographs of ancient relatives long banished from the rooms below. There were only two pictures that were not of relatives, one an old chromo of a puppy sitting on a raining doorstep. That picture always made Valancy unhappy, that forlorn little dog 
crouched on the doorstep in the driving rain. Why didn't someone open the door and let him in? The other picture was a faded parspitude engraving of Queen Louise coming down a stairway, which Aunt Wellington had lavishly given her on her tenth birthday. For nineteen years she had looked at it and hated it, beautiful, smug, self-satisfied Queen Louise. But she never dared destroy it or remove it. Mother and cousin Stickles would have been aghast, or, as Valency irreverently expressed in her thoughts, would have had a fit. Every room in the house was ugly, of course, but downstairs appearances were kept up somewhat. There was no money for rooms nobody ever saw. Valency sometimes felt that she could have done something for her room herself, even without money, if she were permitted. But her mother had negatived every timid suggestion, and Valency did not persist. Valency never persisted. She was afraid to. Her mother could not brook opposition. Mrs. Sterling would sulk for days if offended with the airs of an insulted duchess. The only thing Valency liked about her room was that she could be alone there at night to cry if she wanted to. But after all, what did it matter if a room, which she used for nothing except sleeping and dressing in, were ugly? Valency was never permitted to stay alone in her room for any other purpose. People who wanted to be alone, so Mrs. Frederick Sterling and Cousin Stickles believed, could only want to be alone for some sinister purpose. But her room in the Blue Castle was everything a room should be. Valency, so cowed and subdued and overridden and snubbed in real life, was wont to let herself go rather splendidly in her daydreams. Nobody in the Sterling clan or its ramifications suspected this, least of all her mother and her cousin Stickles. They never knew that Valency had two homes, the ugly red brick box of a home on Elm Street and the Blue Castle in Spain. Valency had lived spiritually in the Blue Castle ever since she could remember. She had been a very tiny child when she found herself possessed of it. Always, when she shut her eyes, she could see it plainly, with its turrets and banners on the pine-clad mountain height, wrapped in its faint blue loveliness, against the sunset skies of a fair and unknown land. Everything wonderful and beautiful was in that castle. Jewels that queens might have worn, robes of moonlight and fire, couches of roses and gold long flights of shallow marble steps with great white urns and with slender, mist-clad maidens going up and down them, courts, marble-pillared, where shimmering fountains fell and nightingales sang among the myrtles, halls of mirrors that reflected only handsome knights and lovely women, herself the loveliest of all, for whose glance men died. All that supported her through the boredom of her days was the hope of going on a dream spree at night. Most, if not all, the Sterlings would have died of horror that they had known half the things Valancy did in her blue castle. For one thing, she had quite a few lovers in it. Oh, only one at a time. One who wooed her with all the romantic ardour of the age of chivalry and won her after long devotion and many deeds of daring-do and was wedded to her with pomp and circumstance in the great banner-hung chapel of the blue castle. At twelve, this lover was a fair lad with golden curls and heavenly blue eyes. At fifteen, he was tall and dark and pale and still necessarily handsome. At twenty, he was ascetic, dreamy, spiritual, 
At 25, he had a clean-cut jaw, slightly grim, and a face strong and rugged rather than handsome. Valency never grew older than 25 in her blue castle. But recently, very recently, her hero had had reddish tawny hair, a twisted smile, and a mysterious past. I don't say Valency deliberately murdered these lovers as she outgrew them. One simply faded away as another came. Things are very convenient in this respect, in Blue Castles. But on this morning of her day of fate, Valency could not find the key of her Blue Castle. Reality pressed on her too hardly, barking at her heels like a maddening little dog. She was 29, lonely, undesired, ill-favoured, the only homely girl in a handsome clan with no past and no future. As far as she could look back, life was drab and colourless, with not one single crimson or purple spot anywhere. As far as she could look forward, it seemed certain to be just the same, until she was nothing but a solitary little withered leaf clinging in a wintry bough. The moment when a woman realises that she has nothing to live for, neither love, duty, purpose, nor hope, holds for her the bitterness of death. And I just have to go on living because I can't stop. I may have to live 80 years, thought Valancy, in a kind of panic. We're all horribly long-lived. It sickens me to think of it. She was glad it was raining, or rather, she was drearily satisfied that it was raining. There would be no picnic that day. This annual picnic, whereby Aunt and Uncle Wellington, one always thought of them in that succession, inevitably celebrated their engagement at a picnic thirty years before, had been, of late years, a veritable nightmare to Valancy. By an impish coincidence, it was the same day as her birthday, and after she had passed twenty-five, nobody let her forget it. Much as she hated going to the picnic, it would never have occurred to her to rebel against it. There seemed to be nothing of the revolutionary in her nature, and she knew exactly what everyone would say to her at the picnic. Uncle Wellington, whom she disliked and despised, even though he had fulfilled the highest sterling aspiration, marrying money, would say to her in a pig's whisper, Not thinking of getting married yet, my dear? And then go off into the bellow of laughter with which he invariably concluded his dull remarks. Aunt Wellington, of whom Valancy stood in abject awe, would tell her about Olive's new chiffon dress and Cecil's last devoted letter. Valancy would have to look as pleased and interested as if the dress and letter had been hers, or else Aunt Wellington would be offended. And Valancy had long ago decided that she would rather offend God than Aunt Wellington, because God might forgive her, but Aunt Wellington never would. Aunt Alberta, enormously fat, with an amiable habit of always referring to her husband as he, as if he were the only male creature in the world who could never forget that she had been a great beauty in her youth, would condole with Valancy on her sallow skin. I don't know why all the girls of today are so sunburned. When I was a girl, my skin was roses and cream. I was counted the prettiest girl in Canada, my dear. Perhaps Uncle Herbert wouldn't say anything, or perhaps he would remark jocularly, how fat you're getting, Doss. And then everybody would laugh over the excessively humorous idea of poor, scrawny little Doss getting fat. Handsome, solemn Uncle James, whom Valancy disliked but respected, because he was reputed to be very clever and was therefore the clan oracle, 
Breens being none too plentiful in the Sterling connection, would probably remark with the owl-like sarcasm that had won him his reputation. I suppose you're busy with your hope chest these days. And Uncle Benjamin would ask some of his abominable conundrums between wheezy chuckles and answer them himself. What is the difference between Doss and a mouse? The mouse wishes to harm the cheese and Doss wishes to charm the he's. Valancy had heard him ask that riddle fifty times and every time she wanted to throw something at him, but she never did. In the first place, the Sterlings simply did not throw things. In the second place, Uncle Benjamin was a wealthy and childless old widower and Valancy had been brought up in the fear and admonition of his money. If she offended him, he would cut her out of his will, supposing she were in it. Valancy did not want to be cut out of Uncle Benjamin's will. She had been poor all her life and knew the galling bitterness of it. So she endured his riddles and even smiled tortured little smiles over him. Aunt Isabel, downright and disagreeable as an east wind, would criticize her in some way. Valancy could not predict just how. For Aunt Isabel never repeated a criticism. She found something new with which to jab you every time. Aunt Isabel prided herself on saying what she thought, but didn't like it so well when other people said what they thought to her. Valancy never said what she thought. Cousin Georgiana, named after her great-great-grandmother, who had been named after George IV, would recount the names of all relatives and friends who had died since the last picnic and wonder, which of us will be the first to go next? Oppressively competent, Aunt Mildred would talk endlessly of her husband and her odious prodigies of babies to Valancy, because Valancy would be the only one she could find to put up with it. For the same reason, Cousin Gladys, really first Cousin Gladys once removed, according to the strict way in which the Sterlings tabulated relationship, a tall, thin lady who admitted she had a sensitive disposition would describe minutely the tortures of her neuritis. And Olive, the wonder girl of the whole Sterling clan, who had everything Valancy had not, beauty, popularity, love, would show off her beauty and presume on her popularity and flaunt her diamond insignia of love in Valancy's dazzled, envious eyes. There would be none of all this today, and there would be no packing up of teaspoons. The packing up was always left for Valancy and Cousin Stickles. And once, six years ago, a silver teaspoon from Aunt Wellington's wedding set had been lost. Valancy never heard the last of that silver teaspoon. Its ghost appeared banquo-like at every subsequent family feast. Oh yes, Valancy knew exactly what the picnic would be like, and she blessed the rain that had saved her from it. There would be no picnic this year. If Aunt Wellington could not celebrate on the sacred day itself, she would have no celebration at all. Thank whatever gods there were for that. Since there would be no picnic, Valancy made up her mind that if the rain held up in the afternoon, she would go up to the library and get another of John Foster's books. Valancy was never allowed to read novels, but John Foster's books were not novels. They were nature books, so the librarian told Mrs. Frederick Sterling. All about the woods and birds and bugs and things like that. So Valancy was allowed to read them, under protest, for it was only too evident that she enjoyed them too much. It was permissible, even laudable, to read to improve your mind and your religion, but a book that was enjoyable 
was dangerous. Valancy did not know whether her mind was being improved or not, but she felt vaguely that if she had come across John Foster's books years ago, life might have been a different thing for her. They seemed to her to yield glimpses of a world into which she might once have entered, though the door was forever barred to her now. It was only within the last year that John Foster's books had been in the Darewood Library, though the librarian told Valancy that he had been a well-known writer for several years. Where does he live? Valancy had asked. Nobody knows. From his books he must be Canadian, but no more information can be had. His publishers won't say a word, quite likely John Foster's a nom de plume. His books are so popular we can't keep them in at all, though I really can't see what people find in them to rave over. I think they're wonderful, said Valancy timidly. Oh well. Miss Clarkson smiled in a patronizing fashion that relegated Valancy's opinions to limbo. I can't say I care much for bugs myself, but certainly Foster seems to know others to know about them. Valancy didn't know whether she cared much for bugs either. It was not John Foster's uncanny knowledge of wild creatures and insect life that enthralled her. She could hardly say what it was, some tantalizing lure of a mystery never revealed, some hint of a great secret just a little further on, some faint, elusive echo of lovely, forgotten things. John Foster's magic was indefinable. Yes, she would get a new Foster book. It was a month since she had thistle harvest, so surely Mother could not object. Valancy had read it four times. She knew whole passages off by heart. And she almost thought she would go see Dr. Trent about that strange pain around the heart. It had come rather often lately, and the palpitations were becoming annoying, not to speak of an occasional dizzy moment and a strange shortness of breath. But could she go to him without telling anyone? It was a most daring thought. None of the Stirlings ever consulted a doctor without holding a family council and getting Uncle James's approval. Then they went to Dr. Ambrose Marsh of Port Lawrence, who had married second cousin Adelaide Stirling. But Valancy disliked Dr. Ambrose Marsh, and besides, she could not get to Port Lawrence, 15 miles away, without being taken there. She did not want anyone to know about her heart. There would be such a fuss made and every member of the family would come down and talk it over, and advise her and caution her and warn her, and tell her horrible tales of great aunts and cousins forty times removed who had been just like that and dropped without a moment's warning, my dear. Aunt Isabel would remember that she had always said Doss looked like a girl who would have heart trouble, so pinched and peaked always, and Uncle Wellington would take it as a personal insult when no Sterling ever had heart disease before and Georgiana would forebode in perfectly audible asides that poor, dear, little Doss isn't long for this world, I'm afraid. And Cousin Gladys would say, why, my heart has been like that for years, in a tone that implied no one else had any business even to have a heart. And Olive. Olive would merely look beautiful and superior and disgustingly healthy, as if to say, why all this fuss over a faded superfluity like Doss when you have me? Valancy felt that she couldn't tell anybody unless she had to. She felt quite sure that there was nothing at all seriously wrong with her heart, and no need of all the bother that would ensue if she mentioned it. She would just slip out quietly and see Dr. Trent that very day. As for the bill, she had the $200 that her father had put in the bank for her the day she was born. 
but she would secretly take out enough to pay Dr. Trent. She was never allowed to use even the interest of this. Dr. Trent was a gruff, outspoken, absent-minded old fellow, but he was a recognized authority in heart disease, even if he were only a general practitioner in out-of-the-world Darewood. Dr. Trent was over 70, and there had been rumors that he meant to retire soon. None of the Sterling clan had ever gone to him since he had told Cousin Gladys, ten years before, that her neuritis was all imaginary and that she enjoyed it. You couldn't patronize a doctor who insulted your first cousin once removed like that. Not to mention that he was a Presbyterian when all the Sterlings went to the Anglican church. The balancing between the devil of disloyalty to clan and the deep sea of fuss and clatter and advice thought she would take a chance with the devil. Chapter 2 When Cousin Stickles knocked at her door, Valancy knew it was half-past seven and she must get up. As long as she could remember, Cousin Stickles had knocked at her door at half-past seven. Cousin Stickles and Mrs. Frederick Sterling had been up since seven, but Valancy was allowed to lie abed half an hour longer because of a family tradition that she was delicate. Valancy got up, though she hated getting up more this morning than ever she had before. What was there to get up for? Another dreary day, like all the days that had preceded it, full of meaningless little tasks, joyless and unimportant, that benefited nobody. But if she did not get up at once, she would not be ready for breakfast at eight o'clock. Hard and fast times for meals were the rule at Mrs. Starling's household. Breakfast at eight, dinner at one, supper at six, year in and year out. No excuses for being late were ever tolerated. So up Valancy got, shivering. The room was bitterly cold with the raw, penetrating chill of a wet May morning. The house would be cold all day. It was one of Mrs. Frederick's rules that no fires were necessary after the 24th of May. Meals were cooked on the little oil stove in the back porch. And though May might be icy on October frostbitten, no fires were lighted until the 21st of October by the calendar. On the 21st of October, Mrs. Frederick began cooking over the kitchen range and lighted a fire in the sitting room stove in the evenings. It was whispered about in the connection that the late Frederick Sterling had caught the cold, which resulted in his death during Valancy's first year of life, because Mrs. Frederick would not have a fire on the 20th of October. She lighted it the next day. That was a day too late for Frederick Sterling. Valancy took off and hung up in the closet her nightdress of coarse, unbleached cotton, with high neck and long, tight sleeves. She put on undergarments of a similar nature, a dress of brown gingham, thick, black stockings, and rubber-heeled boots. Of late years, she had fallen into the habit of doing her hair with the shade of the window by the looking-glass pulled down. The lines on her face did not show so plainly then. But this morning, she jerked the shade to the very top and looked at herself in the leprous mirror with a passionate determination to see herself as the world saw her. The result was rather dreadful. Even a beauty would have found that harsh, unsoftened sidelight trying. Valancy saw straight, black hair, short and thin, always lusterless, despite the fact that she gave it one hundred strokes of the brush, neither more nor less, every night of her life, and faithfully rubbed Redfern's hair vigor into the roots, more lusterless than ever in its morning roughness. Fine, straight black brows, a nose she had always felt was much too small, even for her 
small, three-cornered face. A small, pale mouth that always fell open a trifle over little, pointed white teeth. A figure, thin and flat-breasted, rather below the average height. She had somehow escaped the family high cheekbones, and her dark brown eyes were too soft and shadowy to be black. Apart from her eyes, she was neither pretty nor ugly, just insignificant looking, she concluded bitterly. How plain the lines around her eyes and mouth were in that merciless light. She did her hair in a pompadour. Pompadours had long gone out of fashion, but they had been in when Valency first put her hair up, and Aunt Wellington had decided that she must always wear her hair so. It is the only way that becomes you. Your face is so small that you must add height to it by a pompadour effect, said Aunt Wellington, who always enunciated commonplaces as if uttering profound and important truths. Valency had hankered to do her hair, pulled low on her forehead, with puffs above the ear, as Olive was wearing hers. But Aunt Wellington's dictum had such an effect on her that she never dared change her style of hairdressing again. But then, there were so many things Valency never dared do. All her life she had been afraid of something, she thought bitterly, from the very dawn of recollection, when she had been so horribly afraid of the black bear that lived, so Cousin Stickles told her, in the closet under the stairs. And I always will be, I know it, I can't help it. I don't know what it'd be like not to be afraid of something. Afraid of her mother's sulky fists, afraid of offending Uncle Benjamin, afraid of becoming a target for Aunt Wellington's contempt, afraid of Aunt Isabel's biting comments, afraid of Uncle James' disapproval, afraid of offending the whole clan's opinions and prejudices, afraid of not keeping up appearances, afraid to say what she really thought of anything, afraid of poverty in her old age. Fair, fair, fair. She could never escape from it. It bound her and enmeshed her like a spider's web of steel. Only in her blue castle could she find temporary release. And this morning, Valency could not believe she had a blue castle. She would never be able to find it again. Twenty-nine, unmarried, undesired. What had she to do with the fairy-like chatelaine of the blue castle? She would cut such childish nonsense out of her life forever and face reality unflinchingly. She turned from her unfriendly mirror and looked out. The ugliness of the view always struck her like a blow. The ragged fence, the tumble-down old carriage shop in the next lot, plastered with crude, violently coloured advertisements. The grimy railway station beyond, with the awful derelicts that were always hanging around it, even at this early hour. In the pouring rain, everything looked worse than usual, especially the beastly advertisement, keep that schoolgirl complexion. Valency had kept her schoolgirl complexion. That was just a trouble. There was not a gleam of beauty anywhere. Exactly like my life, thought Valency drearily. Her brief bitterness had passed. She accepted facts as resignedly as she'd always accepted them. She was one of the people whom life always passes by. There was no altering that fact. In this mood, Valency went down to breakfast. Chapter 3 Breakfast was always the same. Oatmeal porridge, which Valency loathed, toast and tea, and one teaspoonful of marmalade. Mrs. Frederick thought two teaspoonsfuls extravagant, but that did not matter to Valency, who hated marmalade too. The chilly, gloomy little dining room was chillier and gloomier than usual. The rain streamed down outside the window, 
departed sterlings in atrocious gilt frames wider than the pictures glowered down from the walls. And yet, Cousin Stickles wished Valancy many happy returns of the day. Sit up straight, Doss, was all her mother said. Valancy sat up straight. She talked to her mother and Cousin Stickles of the things they always talked of. She never wondered what would happen as she tried to talk of something else. She knew, therefore she never did it. Mrs. Frederick was offended with Providence for sending a rainy day when she wanted to go to a picnic, so she ate her breakfast in a sulky silence for which Valancy was rather grateful. But Cousin Stickles whined endlessly on as usual, complaining about everything, the weather, the leak in the pantry, the price of oatmeal and butter. Valancy felt at once she had buttered her toast too lavishly. The epidemic of mumps and Darewood. Doss will be sure to catch them, she foreboded. Doss must not go where she is likely to catch mumps, said Mrs. Frederick, shortly. Valancy had never had mumps, or whooping cough, or chickenpox, or measles, or anything she should have had, nothing but horrible colds every winter. Doss's winter colds were a sort of tradition in the family. Nothing, it seemed, could prevent her from catching them. Mrs. Frederick and Cousin Stickles did their heroic best. One winter, they kept Valancy housed up from November to May in the warm sitting room. She was not even allowed to go to church. And Valancy took cold after cold and ended up with bronchitis in June. None of my family were ever like that, said Mrs. Frederick, implying that it must be a sterling tendency. The Sterlings seldom take cold, said Cousin Stickles resentfully. She had been a Sterling. I think, said Mrs. Frederick, that if a person makes up her mind not to have colds, she will not have colds. So that was the trouble. It was all Valancy's own fault. But on this particular morning, Valancy's unbearable grievance was that she was called Doss. She had endured it for 29 years, and all at once she felt she could not endure it any longer. Her full name was Valancy Jane. Valancy Jane was rather terrible, but she liked Valancy with its odd, outland tang. It was always a wonder to Valancy that the Stirlings had allowed her to be so Christianed. She had been told that her maternal grandfather, old Amos Wandsborough, had chosen the name for her. Her father had tacked on the Jane by way of civilizing it, and the whole connection got out of the difficulty by nicknaming her Doss. She never got Valancy from anyone but outsiders. Mother, she said timidly, would you mind calling me Valancy after this? Doss seems so, so I don't like it. Mrs. Frederick looked at her daughter in astonishment. She wore glasses with enormously strong lenses that gave her eyes a peculiarly disagreeable appearance. What is the matter with Doss? It seems so childish, faltered Valancy. Oh. Mrs. Frederick had been a Wandsborough, and the Wandsborough smile was not an asset. I see. Well, it should suit you, then. You are childish enough in all conscience, my dear child. I am twenty-nine, said the dear child, desperately. I wouldn't proclaim it from the housetops if I were you, dear, said Mrs. Frederick. Twenty-nine. I had been married nine years when I was twenty-nine. I was married at seventeen, said Cousin Stickles proudly. Valancy looked at them furtively. Mrs. Frederick, except for those terrible glasses and hooked nose that made her look more like a parrot than a parrot itself could look, was not ill-looking. At twenty, she might have been quite pretty. But Cousin Stickles. And yet, Christine Stickles 
had once been desirable in some man's eyes. Valancy felt that Cousin Stickles, with her broad, flat, wrinkled face, a mole right on the end of her dumpy nose, bristling hairs on her chin, wrinkled, yellow neck, pale, protruding eyes, and thin, puckered mouth, had yet this advantage over her, this right to look down on her. And even yet, Cousin Stickles was necessary to Mrs. Frederick. Valancy wondered, pitifully, what it would be like to be wanted by someone, needed by someone. No one in the whole world needed her, or would miss anything from life if she dropped suddenly out of it. She was a disappointment to her mother. No one loved her. She had never so much as had a girlfriend. I haven't even a gift for friendship, she had once admitted to herself, pitifully. Doss, you haven't eaten your crusts, said Mrs. Frederick, rebukingly. It rained all the forenoon without cessation. Valency pieced a quilt. Valency hated piecing quilts. And there was no need of it. The house was full of quilts. There were three big chests, packed with quilts, in the attic. Mrs. Frederick had been storing away quilts when Valency was seventeen, and she kept on storing them, though it did not seem likely that Valency would ever need them. But Valency must be at work, and fancy work materials were too expensive. Idleness was a cardinal sin in the Sterling household. When Valency had been a child, she had been made to write down every night in a small, hated black notebook all the minutes she had spent in idleness that day. On Sundays, her mother would tot them up and pray over them. On this particular forenoon of this day of destiny, Valency spent only ten minutes in idleness. At least, Mrs. Frederick and Cousin Stickles would have called it idleness. She went to her room to get a better thimble, and she opened Thistle Harvest guiltily at random. The woods are so human, wrote John Foster, that to know them one must live with them. An occasional saunter through them, keeping to the well-trodden paths, will never admit us to their intimacy. If we wish to be friends, we must seek them out and win them by frequent, reverent visits at all hours, by morning, by noon, and by night, and at all seasons, in spring, in summer, in autumn, in winter. Otherwise, we can never really know them, and any pretense we may make to the contrary will never impose on them. They have their own effective way of keeping aliens at a distance and shutting their hearts to mere casual sightseers. It is of no use to seek the woods from any motive except to share love of them. They will find us out at once and hide all their sweet old world secrets from us. But if they know we come to them because we love them, they will be very kind to us and give us such treasures of beauty and delight as are not bought or sold in any marketplace. For the woods, when they give it all, give unstintedly and hold back nothing from their true worshippers. We must go to them lovingly, humbly, patiently, watchfully, and we shall learn what poignant lovingness lurks in the wild places and silent intervals, lying under starshine and sunset, what cadences of unearthly music are harped on aged pine boughs or crooned in copses of fear. What delicate savours exhale from mosses and ferns in sunny corners or in damp brooklands. What dreams and myths and legends of an older time haunt them. Then the immortal heart of the woods will beat against ours, and its subtle life will steal into our veins and make us its own forever, so that no matter where we go or how wildly we wander, we shall yet be drawn back to the forest to meet our most enduring kinship. Doss called her mother from the hall below. 
What are you doing all by yourself in that room? Valency dropped thistle harvest like a hot coal and fled downstairs to her patches. But she felt the strange exhilaration of spirit that always came momentarily to her when she dipped into one of John Foster's books. Valency did not know much about woods, except the haunted groves and oak and pine around her blue castle. But she had always secretly hankered after them, and a Foster book about woods was the next best thing to the woods themselves. At noon, it stopped raining, but the sun did not come out until three. Then Valency timidly said she thought she would go uptown. What do you want to go uptown for? demanded her mother. I want to get a book from the library. You got a book from the library only last week. No, it was four weeks. Four weeks? Nonsense. Really, it was, mother. You were mistaken. It cannot possibly have been more than two weeks. I dislike contradiction, and I do not see what you want to get a book for, anyhow. You waste too much time reading. Of what value is my time? asked Valency bitterly. Doss, don't speak in that tone to me. We need some tea, said Cousin Stickles. She might go and get it if she wants a walk, though this damp weather is bad for colds. They argued the matter for ten minutes longer, and finally, Mrs. Frederick agreed, rather grudgingly, that Valency might go. Good night.